You can be seated. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 7, and we'll have described for us Solomon's palace and then the furnishings for the inside of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 7, before we read that, let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and your church and this church are built on the promises and your power revealed in your word. And so we pray that you would build us, your church, today by your word. And that this time, here in what you tell us in your scriptures, would be used in part to conform us evermore into the image of Christ, who is our head. We pray in his name. Amen. First Kings chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, 100 cubits long, 50 wide, and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns, 45 beams, 15 to a row. Its windows were placed high in sets of three, facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part of, in sets of three, facing each other. He made a colonnade 50 cubits long and 30 wide. In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. He built the throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the palace in which he was to live, set farther back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these structures from the outside to the great courtyard and from foundation to eaves were made of blocks of high-grade stone, cut to size and trimmed with a saw on their inner and outer faces. The foundations were laid with large, store, <coughs> with large stones of good quality, some measuring ten cubits and some eight. Above were high-grade stones cut to size and cedar beams. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with its portico. King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Huram, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali and whose father was a man of Tyre and a craftsman in bronze. Huram was highly skilled and experienced in all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 cubits around by line. He also made two capitals of cast bronze set on the tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains festooned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network, were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jachin, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies. And so the work on the pillars was completed. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. But the rim, below the rim, gourds encircled it ten to a cubit. The gourds were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. The sea stood on twelve bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand breadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, 
like a lily blossom, it held 2,000 baths. He also made 10 movable stands of bronze. Each was four cubits long, four wide, and three high. This is how the stands were made. They had side panels attached to uprights. On the panels between the uprights were lions, bulls, and cherubim, and on the uprights as well. Above and below the lions and bulls were wreaths of hammered work. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and each had a basin resting on four supports cast with wreaths on each side. On the inside of the stand, there was an opening that had a circular frame one cubit deep. This opening was round, and with its base work, it measured a cubit and a half. Around its opening, there was engraving. The panels of the stands were square, not round. The four wheels were under the panels, and the axles of the wheels were attached to the stand. The diameter of each wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. The axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of cast metal. Each stand had four handles, one on each corner, projecting from the stand. At the top of the stand, there was a circular band half a cubit deep. The supports and panels were attached to the top of the stand. He engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees on the surfaces of the supports and on the panels in every available space with wreaths all around. This is the way he made the ten stands. They were all cast in the same molds and were identical in size and shape. He then made ten bronze basins, each holding forty baths and measuring four cubits across, one basin to go on each of the ten stands. He placed five of the stands on the south side of the temple and five on the north. He placed the sea on the south side at the southeast corner of the temple. He also made the basins and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Huram finished all the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of the Lord. The two pillars, the two, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of network, two rows of pomegranates for each network, decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 10 stands with their 10 basins, the sea and the 12 bowls under it, the pots, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. All these objects that Huram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze. The king had them cast in clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Succoth and Zarethan. Solomon left all these things unweighed because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. The golden altar, the golden temple on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work and lamps and, and tongs, the pure gold basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. So what fatigues you? There are all different kinds of fatigue, right? There's physical fatigue. Some people experience physical fatigue more quickly than others. It takes Bob Fuca about 12 miles to feel physical fatigue when he runs. It takes me about 12 meters to feel physical fatigue when I run. There's attention fatigue. Maybe you're sitting in a particularly boring class or watching a, a documentary on something that isn't interesting to you. You have, you have attention fatigue. I have to uh, attention fatigue when I'm driving sometimes, particularly through a place like Iowa. It's hard to pay attention when you're driving through Iowa. Then there's emotional fatigue. You get emotional fatigue maybe when you're watching kids all day and they're not particularly behaving this day, or maybe you're having a conversation with that motor mouth friend 
who doesn't really realize that conversations are supposed to involve input, input from both parties. And there's detail fatigue. Somebody goes on and on and on and on and on in a story telling you every detail and you're not really particularly interested in every detail. Perhaps that's how you felt as we came through chapter 7 of 1 Kings with all these details on top of details on top of details. Yet, when we're passionate about something, we care about the details and we will tolerate the details far more. And you get the idea that the author of Kings is passionate about details, but not just any details. The author of Kings is passionate about details with the temple and with the temple where God, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, is worshipped. And so we'll, we'll see just how passionate this author is as we compare and contrast the two main portions of this part and this chapter in God's Word because the, the chapter breaks into two parts, although they're not equally weighted. The first part has to do with Solomon building his house, and the second part has to do with Solomon furnishing God's house. So let's start in the, the first 12 verses. The first 12 verses deal with Solomon building his, temple, or his palace complex. And this is a, a massive structure. It's the place where Solomon and the kings of Israel and then Judah would have lived in a place that would, in, would in, encase and house all the government officials which would be needed to reign over this vast kingdom which Solomon inherited and then subsequently expanded. And this complex was huge. It is way larger than the temple. And it's, it's grand. In fact, the temple takes the name of the materials used to build it. It is the, the palace of the forest of Lebanon. So many huge trees were used to construct this place that it takes the, the Lebanese forest as its name. So grand and high and tall and great is this complex. And when we're reading through these chapters, I think I perhaps should have said this last week, when we're reading through these chapters, it's good to keep in mind that a cubit is about a foot and a half. That will help us to make some, some calculations and create an internal uh, a mind picture. But, but this internal structure, is, or this, this grand structure, is not the main point of the passage. So we want to note just a few things before we move on to the main point of the passage. We want to note three things about this, about this palace complex. The first of which is we see another yellow flag. We've seen a number of yellow flags about Solomon as we've gone through. The first yellow flag we see here is that Solomon takes 13 years to build his house, whereas he takes only seven years to build the Lord's house. And so if these, if these projects started at the same time, whether they did or not is really unknown, but if these projects started at the same time, when the temple is done, Solomon's palace would have gone almost double again to be completed. And so we see here that Solomon puts more emphasis on his kingdom and on his nation in his house than he does on the Lord's house. But every house at some point crumbles. Whether it be Solomon's palace or whether it be Solomon's nation, every house and every nation, our houses and even our nation will one day crumble. But God's house God's glory and God's kingdom endures forever. So this should be a reminder for us to spend more of our time and attention on things that matter ultimately than on things that only matter temporarily. 
And so we see that Solomon spends a lot of time on his house, but the author, the Spirit-inspired author, spends much more time on God's house. The second thing we note is another yellow flag, one that's come up before, that Solomon, inside this temple complex, builds a palace, or inside this palace, builds a palace for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married, the text notes. And we don't dwell on this, but these, these foreign wives are going to be the downfall of Solomon. And the third thing we notice is that this is a, a grand structure. And it communicates stability and security. That as God had promised to give David a son to sit on his throne and that that son would have peace and that that son would build a temple so God has kept all of those promises. Solomon sits on the throne, he has peace, and he's built God a house. And so God's promises have come true. God has, God has established Solomon and given him security on the throne just as he promised that he would. But these 12 verses are really the minority section of this, of this chapter. The main focus comes in the following 39 verses where the author is detailing, and I mean detailing, the, the furnishings of the temple of the Lord, the utensils that are used for his worship. You know, last week we looked at the exterior and the interior of God's house in Solomon's time, and so today our focus is on the things which are put into the interior, and you'll, you'll probably be relieved to know that we're not going to go through each individual item in turn, looking at its significance. We're going to look at the, at the big picture. What do all these things communicate? I think the author of Kings means for us to look at the big picture. So first, let's look at this, this Hurim guy. He's the, he's the son of a, of a widow from Naphtali. His father has probably died. His mother has married this man from Tyre. And so Huram's new father is, is a, a bronze worker. And like most men in that day, Huram follows in the trade of his father. And he becomes a, a bronze worker. But he seems to excel his father. He is the, the best of the best as far as bronze workers go. And so Solomon wants to contract this, this Hurim to come to Jerusalem and do all the bronze work for this grand temple. And so Hurim comes to Jerusalem and he does all this. And this Hurim is meant to remind us of something very significant. That when Moses was, was being given instructions by God, God gives Moses instructions to build the tabernacle. And it was like a, a grand tent. And it was the place where the ark of the Lord would rest with his people. It's the physical manifestation of God's presence with his people. And when Moses is told to make this tabernacle, we read this in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze. So the temple, like the tabernacle, is in good hands. And God makes sure that the best of the best are working on building his house. Now two of the things that Hurum builds and casts and makes are two grand temples. These temples are, are 20, or these, rather, sorry, these pillars are, are 27 feet tall, 27 and a half feet tall, and they're 18 feet around in circumference. The bronze all the way around that circumference is three inches thick, and they're hollow on the inside. Then they have another capital of about seven and a half feet on top of that, 
and so you have, you have a total height of about 35 feet. And these are, are ornately decorated pillars. And they stand there as sort of a, a statement. And the statement is even more important than the pillars themselves because these pillars are named. And the name of the first pillar is Jachin. The name of the second pillar is Boaz. And the name Jachin means, means he will establish. And so this, this magnificent 27-foot pillar with the 7-foot capital on top, this magnificent pillar is a, is a testimony to the faithfulness of God to make promises to His people. God had promised to David that He would establish His house, that He would establish His dynasty, and this pillar stands as a memorial, as a monument, showing us that God makes promises to His People. You see, Solomon knows good and well why he sits on Israel's throne. And Solomon knows good and well why he has the means to make this temple for the glory of God. It's because God had made a promise to his father. And God has kept that promise in his own time. This pillar is a monument to the faithfulness and steadfastness of God. We have a similar monument to the faithfulness of God in our own sanctuary. Sitting just over to my right in a, in a little box is a Bible. And it is, as far as I can tell, the original English language pulpit Bible here from First Church. And as you may or may not know, in the year 1945, the original First Church structure burned to the ground. It was a trying time for the church. There was no pastor. It was the end of World War II, there was all kinds of difficulties, and so the, the church burns to the ground, it makes the front page of newspapers, it's really citywide news, and so the, the people of First Church come to comb through the rubble and the ash, and buried under 30 inches of ash is found the pulpit Bible, still perfectly intact. And so that pulpit Bible sits in that box as a silent but bold proclamation that this church is built on the Word of God. That this church is built on the Word of God. And as magnificent as this structure is, one day when it comes down, like the prophet says, the Word of the Lord endures forever. The second pillar is named Boaz. And Boaz means in him is strength. Not only does God make promises? But God is powerful enough to keep every last one of His promises. God had made promises to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, and God has kept by His power every promise. He has the power to make floodwaters recede. He has the power to open the womb of a 90-year-old woman. He has the power to part the sea so His people can walk through. And He has the power to establish an eternal dynasty out of the youngest son who was a shepherd boy. God makes promises, and God always has the power to keep His promises. We read about this perhaps at the very end of Psalm 21. The psalmist sings, Be exalted, O God, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So the promise and power of God symbolically hold up the place where God dwells with His people. They just say that God's people are unable to come into worship without acknowledging first the promises of God and acknowledging second the power of God to keep all of His promises. When we come into worship, 
We should recall that we enter into God's presence because of His promises and the power to keep His promises exhibited for us in Christ. That we come into worship the very same way. But after these pillars are described, there's all kinds of furnishings of bronze. There's bronze bowls and stands, and there's the great sea, there's gourds and pomegranates, there's intricately designed beasts and, and all this kind of thing uh, inscribed in them. There's stands and shovels and pots and more bowls and more basins. Then there's the gold. Whoever doesn't do the gold, Solomon does the gold. And there's a golden altar and a gold table, gold lampstands, and there's more and more and more and more gold. So what's the point? These aren't blueprints so that we can reconstruct a temple. You would need far more information than this if you're going to rebuild the temple. And so if it's not blueprints, if it's not meant to give us instructions, then why is this here? When you, when you add these 39 verses with the verses that came in chapter 6, you have 77 verses of detail about this temple compared to only 12 of Solomon's palace. Why the detail? Is it, is it here to fatigue us? Is it here to make us give up our Bible reading in a year plan before we even get to the halfway point? No, it's to make a simple point. That God is to be given our best. And the worship of God is to be given our best. Consider Solomon's thoughtfulness. Everything in the temple has a purpose. There's an altar for sacrifice. Because God's people come into God's presence only with the blood of a sacrifice. There's that golden table. And on that table sits some bread. And that is the bread of the presence. It reminds the people that as they were wandering through the wilderness, God was feeding them, sustaining them. That God's presence is what keeps God's people alive. And so that bread is there on that table. Then there's the, the decorations we talked about last week, reminding the priests of Eden. Then there's the, the grand cherubim, this holy defender of the honor and the glory of God. And all of this is done with intentionality, with great thought. And then you, you come into the other things, and then there's, there's lavishness. The best materials and the best craftsmanship the most intricate of details. No expense seems to be spared. Solomon gives God of the best of the best. And we can take a lesson here as well. That we should give God our best. What does that mean for us? What does it mean in, in post-resurrection, 21st century America, what does it mean for us to give God of our best. Well, I think that affects all different spheres of our lives, but the, the focus in chapter 7 is on worship. So we'll think about what does it mean to give God our best in worship. For me, it means thinking carefully about the service. It means working diligently to craft a message which is beneficial for the new believer and the seasoned saint and which is faithful to the text. It means thinking about what we're going to pray for, how we're going to pray for it, how often to pray for various things. It means thinking about how to incorporate all the different things that God's people should do in their times together in worship in a way that is beneficial for the church in our own context, that's beneficial 
for you. It means thinking about how is it that we are going to make the most of our moments, because our moments are few together. How do we make the most of our moments together that we might benefit the most and that God might receive glory in our time together? Giving my best means being intentional and careful and thoughtful. Giving our best means that we, it means that we come. It's a good place to start, isn't it? Giving our best to God in worship means that we come to worship. It means that we are present. That when God's Word is read and it says, shout for joy to God all the earth, when God's Word calls us to worship, that insofar as we are able, we are here. And that we are not just here, but that we are here cheerfully and joyfully. That we come glad, even eager to confess our sins and our dependence upon God. And that when we come to confess our sins and our dependence upon God, we are eager to hear God say, you are forgiven and I will provide for you. Look what I have done already. Will I not keep giving to you? That we come to, to lift our voices in song. That we come to join our hearts in prayer. That we come to receive God's blessing. That when the benediction is given, that we, that we sit under it and let it wash over us, strengthening us for whatever is to come in the week which is to come. It means not just showing up to do the same thing in the same way we've always done. It means showing up to give God our best by engaging our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our bodies in God's worship to the absolute best of our abilities. It means giving to God of our personal best. And I was thinking about this on Thursday. Sometimes you hit a wall. You're not exactly sure what to say next. So I went for a walk. Doctors say you're supposed to get up every hour and walk. So I was trying to be a good patient. And so I got up and I started walking. And I I, I came in here. I thought, what does it mean for us to give God our best? I started noticing things in our sanctuary. First thing that I noticed, which is supposed to be the first thing we notice, is that front and center is our pulpit. It's a beautiful pulpit. I appreciate that it's a tall pulpit. And the Word of God is first and foremost for us. That when we come to worship the living and holy God, we come to worship Him as He reveals us, reveals Himself to us in His Word. The Word is here. And then typically... The sacraments sit just behind it. The baptismal font and the communion table. Because these are behind the Word as the Word illuminates them. But they are God's means of grace to us. This is how God makes promises and seals promises to us. Reminds us of His promise. And I noted that we have this new wood floor. It not only looks nice, but it's meant to convey something. It's meant to give a sense of stability, security. But this is, in a sense, holy ground. This is the place where God's Word is preached. And God's Word is stable and secure. That our hope is built on God's Word. And that is the most stable and secure place to place our hope because God shows us Himself and shows us Christ in His Word. I notice we have pews. I love pews. I love pews because pews have a purpose. 
the church began using pews because everybody sits side to side together. Rich and poor, brown and white, employer and employee, male and female, new believer and seasoned saint, we all sit side by side on the same level. There is no distinction among us when we sit. That we sit together. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by the same Christ in need of the same word. And then we have beautiful stained glass. This is what it means for us to give our best of our thoughts to God. I'm not saying that churches that meet underground or churches that meet in gymnasiums are not giving their best to God. That's not at all what I mean. They give their best to God in other ways. But for us, for us this is part of what it means to give our best to God. But I noticed something I'd never really intentionally noticed before. I noticed that just over here to my left, we have two pillars. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I wonder if we ought to refer to them as Jacob and Boaz. Reminders that God makes promises to us and that God has the power to keep his promises to us. That it is God and God alone who is worshipped in this and we come into this place to give God our best. Ralph Davis has this to say in his commentary. He says, is that not the position of the writer of 1 Kings 7? Is he not suggesting that intricate, carefully wrought beauty is most fitting for the God of the Bible? Is he not implying that nothing can be too good, too lavish, or too well done for such a marvelous God? We must never offer him slop. Take this as an encouragement and a warning to offer ourselves in the best way to God and never to offer God slop in our worship. Don't let your worship be a time of frazzled thoughts. Don't come rushing in late, a million things on your mind, distracted, thinking perhaps already about the next day. But come ready. Wake up early. Come here ready to be at rest. Your mind ready to focus on God. I know that it's difficult sometimes. You get stuck by a train. You have children you have to get ready. I don't know what it's like to get kids ready for church, but my wife knows a thing or two about getting kids ready for church. But it's good to come and be ready to give our best to God. To give our clearest thoughts and our most undivided attention to God. And when you're here, don't mouth the words to songs. Don't stand like some kind of mute accessory to worship. But sing! Sing with your heart. And when we're praying, don't drift off. I know how, it's, how it can be to drift off. Don't drift off, but listen to the words. Pray the words together that are being prayed. And as we read the Scriptures, even 51 verse long descriptions of the furnishings of the temple, read along, pay attention, soak it up. And when there's preaching, don't grade the preacher. 
Okay, that's not going to work out well for either of us. I'm just a dying man preaching to dying men. But indulge in the God who is being preached and in the Christ who is proclaimed. And when the worship call is given, don't miss it, but hear it. The God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, calls you to come and worship. And when the last song is being sung, don't pick up your purse and start putting it on. Don't think about how you're going to get out to your car. Don't be wondering if your roast is done. Don't be thinking about what kind of cookies, kids, you're going to eat too many of downstairs. But enjoy singing that last moment to God. Shout and sing with all creation. Sing the glory of God's name. Sing! You're going to spend a lot of time in glory singing. You might as well get used to it now. And when the benediction is given, don't leave. Don't think about other things. Don't don't think about what ball game. It's not permission to walk out. This is God, the maker of the heavens and the earth again. God who shed the blood of His Son. This is God saying, you, my children, are blessed. Do you want to be blessed by God? So listen. Pay attention. Offer the the best you have to God. And that means giving your thoughts and your attention to God. Don't sit on your phone. You're all addicted to your phones, okay? Those of you who don't have phones, you're exempt from this. Don't, Don't sit here. The pastor, I can see you playing with your phone. I'm looking up from here. Don't look at your phone. Leave your phone at home. Whatever it is that distracts you from focusing on the God of glory, leave it at home. Focus. Love God. God is everywhere, but God is particularly with His people. He is strongly with His people when we are together. So indulge. Indulge in our time together. Don't miss it. Don't miss it for the world. This world passes away, but the worship of God endures forever. Don't offer God slop, but offer Him your absolute best. I had a conversation with one of you recently. I always have pleasant conversations with this person. And it was honestly admitted, and I'm very impressed, it was honestly admitted that when I said we were going to be looking at the book of Kings, the response was an an inaudible internal groan. Why Kings? I get it. Kings is full of detail. Things that that seem not to be part of the big picture. But then a few weeks in, a few weeks in, there was a sense that there is much to be benefited by here. That this is useful for God's people. Useful for God's church. All of Scripture is useful. Sometimes you just need to dig a little bit deeper to find the goal. But like the inside of the temple, It's all gold. God's Word is all gold. There is much to be learned, even from seemingly dry, dusty records from a bygone era. There is much to be learned. There is much to be benefited by. We are encouraged in some things and convicted in others. That's precisely as it should be. Ralph Davis, when he finishes his commentary again, says this, Who would have thought that the Holy Spirit might use 1 Kings 7 
to convict us of the flippant and casual procedures we sometimes call worship. Perhaps you have been convicted. Good. Let the worthiness of our God compel you to offer him astonishingly lavish worship. Let's pray. God, we come together to confess our distracted minds, to ask forgiveness for where we have offered you slop, for where we have focused our minds I'm one another first instead of you. And we come to ask for your forgiveness and to ask for your blessing. That your spirit might be given to us in power. That he would cause us to tremble in fear before you and to rejoice that you love us. That we would soak up our time in worship. Give you our best. You've given us your best. Your Son and your Spirit. You've given yourself to us. And so we pray that you would help us to give ourselves to you. Humbly, cheerfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to come to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ.